You shall not make for yourself an idol. Today's scripture reading is from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the fire. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You are the righteous, holy one. You are the one who speaks out of the fire. You are the one who we cannot contain. Lord, we confess that every prayer we've ever made is a prayer to an idol of our own making. Yet we trust, O oh Lord, that you are the true God and you hear our prayers and you have mercy on us. We pray that your mercy and your peace will be known through these words, these poor human words. Your living word will be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as I said, today we continue our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Last week we hosted the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and while we aren't in much danger of worshiping literal gods these days like Thor, Zeus, or Amun-Ra, we all have our gods, and our gods are whatever our hearts cling to for purpose, meaning, security, and peace. Could be beauty, could be career, could be amazing athletic abilities. No matter what it is, they truly never satisfy us no matter how hard we work and how much of our lives we give to them. And contrast this, of course, with the biblical God who loves us without effort or earning on our part, who gives all good things, especially forgiveness, without 
price. And the promise is, if we cling to this God, turn to this God for our purpose, meaning, security, and peace, we will not be disappointed. So that was like a mini-sermon version of last week's sermon, I guess. This week, though, we turn to the second commandment, the second commandment being closely related to the first one. The second commandment being, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And it continues, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and worship them. The classic King James translation of the Bible says, rather than idols, graven images. And I actually think that I like that translation a little bit better. Uh, Graven images. But whether we use the phrase image or idol, the meaning is the same. The meaning is the same. Whereas the first commandment warns against worshiping false gods, putting our hearts towards and trust in those false gods, the second warns against worshiping objects or images, putting our trust in created things. Now, the obvious biblical example is pictured on your screen here. From the very same book where the commandments are given, about 12 chapters later in the book of Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's communing with the Lord and God's fingertip is carving these very Ten Commandments on stone tablets. Meanwhile, all the rest of the Israelites are at the base of the mountain. These former slaves are waiting for Moses to return with a divine communication. And it's taking a really, really, really long time like 40 days. So the people start getting restless. They start worrying that he's not coming back. So the crowd turns to Moses' brother, Aaron, and says, make us some gods to worship. And in response, Aaron gathers all the gold jewelry, the booty that they had all stolen, or had been all given, actually, on their way out of Egypt, and they melt it down, smelting and smithing it, into the image of a golden calf statue. So that's what's on the screen there, the golden calf statue. Revelry and debauchery ensue, with Moses tearing into them and smashing the tablets when he finally arrives. I mean, I think one of of the great comic moments of the Bible is where Aaron guiltily says to Moses, I just put the gold in the fire and the calf came out. I don't know what happened, you know? I mean, things can get out of control very quickly when it comes to false images, graven images. Now, this image that Aaron makes is very clearly an idol. It's a graven image, an obvious breaking of the second commandment. And what's interesting here is that scholars tend to be divided on between two different interpretations of what the actual problem with the text is. And it's based on kind of ambiguity in the language. You don't need to know that. But the two different interpretations are important. And they're kind of equally, they make an equally valid point. And the first interpretation goes like this. The Israelites became impatient with Yahweh after they were brought out of slavery. They were on the edge of the desert 
with a perilous, deadly journey about ahead of them, so they turned back to the safety and security of what they already had learned in 400 years. In Egypt, worshiping images of Egypt's various gods. I mean, if it makes sense if you're genuflecting to a statue of the god Isis. It's pretty safe that it's a short hop, skip, and a jump to worshiping the real Isis. So these are, this is meant to be, in this reading, it's meant to be an image of these false gods. So that is the first interpretation. And now, as I said, this is completely valid, completely true. Um, the second interpretation of this story, though, adds another dimension to the commandment itself. And it goes like this. The calf statue is a problem, not only because it is a false god, which it is, but because it is intended as a statue of the true God, as a representation of the true God. Aaron at one point says, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt and points to the golden calf. This calf is intended as a very handsome portrait of Yahweh, the one with the commandments, the one you're supposed to put first above all else. Now, why would this be a problem? I mean, they're trying to worship the true God through this image, right? Well, first of all, God isn't like any object there is. God is not a creature or anything that can be found in the heavens above, the earth below, or the sea beneath. The Westminster Confession of Faith from the 1700s, you know that one, of course, right? Yes. Some of you might. Presbyterians among us may know something about the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says simply that God is spirit, right? God is spirit. God comes to the Israelites as a burning flame accompanied by a voice, something that they can't tame. The Israelites want God to be instantly accessible, something you can see, touch, hold on to. Seeing is believing, as the old phrase goes, right? The problem is with the calf is that calf is that the Israelites can project whatever they want onto this God. Any attempt to depict God is an attempt to control God, to recruit God for our own purposes and biases. The great Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire once quipped that God made man in his image, and man was quick to return the favor. Right? That is the second commandment. Our images of God tend to reflect us, our concerns, and our biases. We can end up worshiping an idol without actually even knowing it, assuming that we are worshiping the true God. Now, how is this a problem? Well, seeing as how Thursday has been set as a day for national truth and reconciliation, we have no further to look than the church's involvement with residential schools. As you may or may not know, the United Church of Canada, our denomination, among several others, ran residential schools, many residential schools, on behalf of the Canadian government. And the United Church has issued several apologies, among other things. You can find that all on the United Church of Canada's website. But the United Church issued an apology to First Nations people in 1986, and, and it was put like this. 
It was put like this. In our zeal to tell you of the good news of Jesus Christ, it says, in our zeal to tell you the good news, we were closed to the value of your spirituality. And here's the important part. Well, it's all important, but here's the important part for our scripture text today. It says, we confused Western ways and culture with the depth and breadth and length and height of the gospel of Christ. We confuse Western ways and culture with the gospel of Christ. Not that Western culture has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ, but we confused the two. We may not have assumed that God was a literal European, but we thought that God sure thought like one. That God's priorities were the same as the church's priorities, which were ultimately the same priorities of the Canadian government. That being a Christian was the same as being Canadian. We made a little statue with our favorite precious metals, and this blinded us to the God-given preciousness of other people. One scholar says that making images of God is like playing with fire. And if you play with fire, somebody's going to get burned. This was our idol, our graven image. I mean, it's telling that the scripture says that punishment for breaking this commandment takes multiple generations to work out because people got burned and are still getting burned by it. Now, of course it's easy to look back on previous generations and offer our judgments as if we would never do such a thing. I mean, if our God perfectly aligns with our modern, progressive, enlightened politics, if our God is a shiny, precious, pure, and spotless version of ourselves, that God is probably an idol too. The writer Anne Lamott says that it's safe to say that your God is an idol if he hates all the same people you do. Right? Now, whether the object of our hatred is conservatives or progressives or drug users, brainwashed vaccine believers or anti-vaxxers, if it's Muslims or atheists or evangelical Christians, it's safe to say that it's not the true God that we're dealing with but an idol. God's ways are still not our ways, and God's thoughts are still not our thoughts. And the same dangers apply to us as they did to the ancient Israelites and to our grandparents in faith. Still applies to us equally. The second commandment is essential because it guards against getting God deeply wrong. 
Images of God are life and de- are a life and death matter. Get your image of God wrong, and there are deadly consequences. You mess with the golden hat, calf, and everybody gets the horns. Okay. So now we all know what not to do. <laughs> right? We all know what not to do. Don't mistake our images of God for the true God. Okay, check. What then? Right? What then? The thing about the commandments is that they always have a kind of double meaning to them. There are a couple dimensions. The great 16th century theologian John Calvin once said that every negative commandment involves a positive obligation. So there's a positive side to every negative and a negative side to every positive commandment. For example, the positive of do not commit adultery is love and be committed to your spouse, right? It's not enough to just not cheat on your spouse. It's probably good to love and respect your spouse, right? The opposite of do not steal is to give of oneself generously. And I'm not really sure that there's such a thing as a positive idol, though, right? However, it says, don't worship these idols, worship these idols instead. Right? But there is, in fact, according to Scripture, an image to be worshipped. Right? There is an image that we can worship, and we're encouraged to worship. And that image is Ryan Slifka. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Do not bow down and worship him, is what it says. I mean, pastors can sometimes be the object of people's unnecessary worship, but that is, I was going to say that's neither here nor there, but it's completely pertinent. But the image that we're given is the image of God in Jesus Christ, right? The image we are given is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That in the life, teachings, death, and resurrection, the God who appeared in fire and word to Moses, this God has been properly rendered in human flesh. Not by human hands, not by human hearts, not by human heads, but by the hand of the Lord himself. And he continues to be present to us in the word of Scripture 
and the fire of the Holy Spirit. He is the image of the invisible God. And the thing about Jesus, the unfortunate thing about Jesus in so many ways, is that Jesus is unlike any God we could ever dream up ourselves, right? If we were going to create a God, why would we create a God that is like this? When we want power, he shows his by giving power away. When we're scheming and plotting, he's out loving the people we hate. When we're out for blood, he sheds his own instead. We couldn't make this kind of God up. If we, if we did, he'd be more like us. On the other hand, I mean, it's bad news in one sense, but on the other hand, it's incredible good news. Because he is so unlike us. When we are racked with guilt, he pronounces forgiveness, even for the worst of our sins. When we assume our worthlessness, he proclaims our worthiness by dying for our sake. And when we're consumed by failure, disappointment, presuming that all hope is lost, he raises us from the dead. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is a challenge to every idol we could conjure and every false image we could construct. To put it simply, Jesus is what God is like. And this is an image that not only guards against getting God wrong, but helps us, by grace, to get God right knowing that the consequences are not just death, but life, and life in the full. Jesus not only helps us not get God wrong, but helps us by grace to get God right. And the thing is, if we get God right, we'll get us right too because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Every single one of us, from the junkie on the street to Queen Elizabeth II. No exceptions. Of course, we're not images to be worshipped. Rather, we are made to reflect the nature of the one who made us. Our job isn't to make gods, but to become more like God yielding our lives to the Creator to reflect God's goodness, wisdom, and love, to become more like Jesus by letting God make and remake us in her image. That is the positive inversion of the second commandment. That's the positive inversion of the second commandment. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, the bad news is that we are highly likely to break the second commandment because we are highly likely to make God in our own image. You'll remember that 
the Israel, Moses, <laughs> Moses wasn't even down the mountain and the Israelites were breaking it, right? We are not unique. The good news is, though, that we are given a true image of God in Jesus Christ. One we can't fashion according to our own likeness, but one who deigns and desires to remake us in his. In a world of false images, we have been given an image of the true God, one we are made to reflect in our own lives. So often we get God wrong, but by grace, we can get God right. And if we get God right, we'll get us right too. May the same God of grace have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Amen. Please stand for our hymn of the day, Beautiful Things. <laughs> <laughs> 